Good everybody. Let's go ahead and find our places, and we'll get started. Praise the Lord. What a good morning already. What a fantastic opportunity just to gather together and see people obedient to the Lord in baptism. That's a blessing, worshiping the Lord. That was great. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them ready. We, we kind of have a topical series that we're going through this summer. It's the subject of the love of God, possibly our favorite subject. I mean, if it weren't for the love of God, where would any of us be, right? Um, the love of God is not just some impersonal, static energy force out in space that grants us our wishes like the genie from Aladdin. The love of God is a personal relationship. That's what it is. Very clearly, the God first loved us. His love for us was first, and our love for God then is just reciprocated back to Him. In this personal relationship, and this is the thing that frequently very religious people just don't get. It's a, it's a personal, intimate relationship. There should be a level of personal intimacy and interaction with the Lord in our lives like we understand in some of the most personal, intimate relationships we have on the earth. Typically, if you're married, it's your spouse, right? And so you share more intimate details and secrets and you know each other well and you enjoy each other's company and, and all of these things happen in these physical relationships that we understand. Well, spiritually speaking with the Lord, well, we should have that similar level of consecration in our relationship with the Lord. And I don't know if you realize it or not, but our personal intimate interaction with God, well, it's expressed in worship. That's where it's expressed. Uh, our worship of the Lord really is meant to be that time when each and every one of us connect on a very deep personal level and it's a time of actual communication and fellowship and interaction with the Lord that's what worship really is singing in of itself by definition is not worship Although music and lyrics together certainly can help facilitate your spiritual connection, amen? In other words, when those things that you are hearing and the things that you are singing back to the Lord, well, when those things speak the truth that is already present in your life, and then you return that message back to the Lord, that message that, He's created in you already. Well, that's worship. That's what worship really is. And today we're going to talk a little bit about how this all connects to the love of God and our lives. And so I've given a title to the message, The Consecration of Love. I went and just ran the Webster's 1828 Dictionary definition of the word consecration. I I thought it was pretty good. Just listen as I read it to you. It's a little long, but it's, it's good. The word consecration, Webster's 1828, the act or ceremony of separating from a common to a sacred use or of devoting and dedicating a person or thing to the service and worship of God. By certain rites or solemnities, consecration does not make a person or a thing really holy but declares it to be sacred, that is, devoted to God or to divine service as the consecration of the priests among the Israelites, the consecration of the vessels used in the temple, the consecration of a bishop, and things like that. So the idea of consecration, we're going to talk about the consecration of love. The consecration of love is the idea of setting yourself apart for a holy purpose, for a holy service. That's worship that's what worship really is so we started this series uh, about a month ago back in Genesis 22 using the template of the story of Abraham and Isaac and and we went there looking at Genesis 22 as the first time the word love ever appears in the Bible 
and how it pictures for us Abraham the father willing to sacrifice Isaac, his only begotten son, as a picture of the great love of God for us and him sacrificing his only begotten son for us. And so we also then see that in Genesis chapter 22, there's the first mention of another word. We saw that a month ago. And that other word that appears for the first time in your Bible is the word worship. And Abraham tells the servants that Isaac and I are going to go up the mountain and worship and then return to you again. And in that context, we come to understand that the very meaning of the word worship therefore has to include some level of sacrifice. It has to include some level of sacrifice because Abraham was going up the mountain to sacrifice his son. But why is that? Why is sacrifice worship? Well, I'm going to propose to you it's because he was motivated by the personal love relationship that he had with God, that he trusted God with everything. That's why he said, we'll go and worship and we'll return unto you. He trusted him. He had a love relationship. He had a deep personal connection with the Lord, that is the very definition of what worship really is. In other words, and this is in your notes, it's our motivation to separate ourselves under the service of God that results in our consecration. If we don't have the right motivation like Abraham had, if we, don't, if we aren't motivated by our deep, loving relationship with our Heavenly Father, we're never going to separate ourselves under the service of the Lord. We're never going to be consecrated unto the Lord. You see, everything in our Christian lives goes back to relationship. Of course it goes back to relationship. Think about it. Love motivates us to desire the best for the other, doesn't it? Love is the thing that causes us to be willing to sacrifice or do without so that the other can benefit, not for yourself. That's the element of sacrifice in a relationship. Every married person knows this. Every parent knows this. There's a level of sacrifice you willingly take on so that the other can be benefited. Well, that's an expression of your love. Jesus Christ understood this when he said in John chapter 14 and verse 28, You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. Notice what he says. If ye loved me, you would rejoice. Because I said, I go to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. In other words, Jesus is saying, I told you that I'm going to go back to my Father, and if you really loved me, you would want the best for me, and you would rejoice that I have the opportunity to go back to my Father. But if you're just always wanting me to stick around, well, that's actually not an expression of love. It's an expression of selfishness, isn't it? Jesus says, if you loved me, You'd have rejoiced because that would have been the best on his personal perspective. So today's message is going to cause us to consider this question. What kind of a relationship do you have with the Lord? Now the question is not, do you have a relationship with the Lord? The question today is, what kind of a relationship do you have with the Lord? Because your honest answer to that question will affect and influence your ministry activity. So what we're going to talk about this morning in this context of love and in the context of consecration is really the idea of motivation. What motivates you? Well, for many people, it's selfishness. I mean, face it, we're all selfish at some level. Some are more, some are less. What motivates us? Well, frequently it is, I want what I want, and I want it now, right? We live in a now society. We live in a very wealthy, affluent Western civilization. We're blessed with the things we have available, and we're very used to getting what we want. And if we don't get what we want, well, you all can just wait until I get mine taken care of. And once I get mine taken care of, well, then I'll be generous to you too. At the end of the day, what's your motivation? Well, selfishness kills ministry. 
Because ministry is all about serving others, and selfishness is all about serving self, right? So today we're going to see how every aspect of your service to the Lord is connected to His love for you, and then in return your love for Him. Because the issue of motivation, it takes you far beyond just being busy doing things for the Lord. A lot of us are busy doing things for the Lord or in the name of the Lord. This issue of motivation addresses why do you do it? Why do you do it? You do it for the love of God. That's why you do it. So we're going to jump in. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll just kind of get into our outline. Heavenly Father, as we just reflect on your un fathomable love for us and all the ways that you've demonstrated it and all the ways that we've already studied this summer looking at how you express your love to us in so many times in so many ways and and we'll continue to see those today lord may we truly demonstrate to you that we really do love you that it's not just an expression it's not just a saying it's not just the right answer to the question it's not just lip service but Truly, our lives will reflect consecration and worship and sacrifice and dedication, but not because we have to, not because somebody's looking, not because of any of those things, but because we love you. And it's an overflow of all that we do. Lord, may we all truly be able to say that we do what we do solely out of our love for you. Thank you for the free gift. Thank you that you first loved us, and I pray that you would speak to our hearts and change us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so today we're going to start by reminding ourselves of some things that probably a lot of us already know, and we're going to build from there. So the first point that we have today is that we are commanded to serve. I think everybody probably understands that we are commanded to serve, and we've seen some of that already. And, and when God commands us to do something, He expects us to obey what he commands, otherwise he wouldn't command it of us, right? And not only are we commanded to serve, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, we see that we're actually saved to serve, right? For grace are you saved through faith, uh, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, we are created a new creature in Jesus Christ so that we will do good works. He has foreordained, in fact, for all those who would freely choose him as his Lord and Savior. He has foreordained, God hath before ordained, that we would walk in these good works. We're not just commanded to serve. This is not just something that popped up on the radar after the fact. God saved us with the purpose that we would do that. I want you to understand that in so laying out this structure, God did not just set us up so that we would be little soldiers, little robots, just for him to command us to, to do whatever it is he wants us to do. He actually gave us the commands of Scripture out of his great love for us. He gave us the commands of Scripture because he wants our best. Do you understand that? Deuteronomy chapter 6 is one of scores of Old Testament verses that clearly lay out this principle. Deuteronomy 6, 24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God. Why? For our good always, that he might pre preserve us alive as it is this day. Did you see that? Why did God command the Israelites to go and to do all the things that he commanded them? Oh, yeah, and the Old Testament law had a fair list of things to be commanded, right? Why did he do that for them and to them and with them and through them? Because it was for their good. It was for their benefit, and God so loved them that he then gave the direction that would continue to benefit them. That's an important distinction. That's something that you need to understand. So God commands us out of an expression of his love, and our obedience to his command is an expression of our love for him. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 15, If ye love me, keep my commandments. That's why he goes on in verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, 
He will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So loving God supremely means that you love him more than anyone or anything else. You think of all of your dearest loves in your life, human or material, be it as it may. Your love for Jesus Christ must far surpass all of those things. And for some of you, you're nodding your heads. You get it. For some of you, maybe you're hearing this kind of a thing for the first time. Just hang with me. This is the kind of intimate, personal, close love relationship our Heavenly Father desires to have with you. That's what He wants. And if we love Him more than anything else, and if love kills our selfishness, and if our love draws us to want the best for others, well, then the obedience to the commands, well, let's just land on the main big command, the Great Commission, to go and make disciples everywhere, right? Okay, so in your notes, I put it this way. When you love someone, you love what they love. And that fact alone is enough to motivate you to act. If you love somebody, you, you start to love what they love. They care about, your wife, your children care about things that maybe you previously didn't care that much about. Now you care about them. Why? Because you care about the individual, that's why. Now the things they care about are a concern to you too. And just because of the love relationship, it motivates you to now go and do things that, well, maybe you wouldn't have otherwise done because you have a love relationship. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to Simon Peter after his resurrection in John chapter 21. We'll start in verse 15. When they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And notice, he saith unto him, Feed my lambs. You see, if you really have that love for me, then, Peter, you're going to start to love the things that I love, and the things that I love, well, they're the lambs. They're those that follow me. He said unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he said to him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said unto him, Well, as a result, then, feed my sheep. And you know, he does it a third time, right? Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And, well, you'd be grieved too because the Lord who knows all, who sees all, who senses all, has to keep asking you after you keep answering, almost makes you think that he knows something about your answer that, well, maybe you didn't even know. Maybe you say it and you think you mean it and the Lord kind of knows that maybe you don't mean it and he's just going to keep digging down a little farther. But the theme that goes through all three of this parallel questioning is the fact that if you really love me, you're going to start to love the things that I love. And the things that I love are my children. The things that I love are a lost world that needs to know salvation. You see, to love the Lord is a deep, personal, consecrated connection at the soul level. Our soul connects with his soul. I mean, Jesus Christ should be your ultimate soul mate. You should be so connected with him. And since the word of God itself depicts for us the, the very soul of God, the Bible is the very soul. It is God's will. His will is revealed in His Word. It, it, it's the very mind of Christ. It reveals to us what God thinks and feels about everything. His mind, His will, His emotions. The Bible is the very soul of God. So to love the Lord at that level means, well, you're going to love His Word. You have to. There's no way around it. Because his word reveals his person. And if you love someone, you want to spend time with them and you want to get to know them better. And how can you possibly get to know him better apart from his word? It's not possible. Therefore, obedience to his word, obedience to the individual words, his commandments, well, that proves the sincerity of your love for him. 
So there's an entire chapter in the Bible, Psalm chapter 119, the longest chapter in all the Bible, the theme of which is man's love for God's Word. Man's love for God's Word. Jesus says in John 15, verse 9, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love, and if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Do you see the connections? Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Keeping the commandments, being faithful to his word, is being connected to the Lord. It's continuing and abiding. As you abide daily in his word, you abide daily in his very person, in his love. That's how he describes it. The main commandment being, go into all the world and make disciples. Evangelism and discipleship of all nations. That's really what he wants us to do. It's the one thing that he left us here on earth to do. And you say, okay, great, I got it, I get it. How am I supposed to pull that off? Okay, well, this is our second point. We're building still. Number two, we saw that we're commanded to serve. Now we're going to see that we are equipped to serve. We are equipped to serve. Again, because God loves you. He didn't leave you alone to do this work. He didn't just command you and say, man, there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of people out there. Good luck. <laughs> he didn't just do that. No, he gave us the equipment and the tools necessary so that we could pull this off. He didn't have to do that. Wouldn't it have been enough if we were just arguing in a court? Would it not be enough if Jesus saved your soul and then left you alone? I mean, wouldn't it still be worth it? Look, it'd been nice if I got some help, but man, I get to go to heaven. I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, you'd still say that's awesome. You're not kicking about that too much, but he loves you and continues to love you. And so he gives you purpose. He tells you that you have a mission in life which gives you purpose in life because now he loves you enough to give you a purpose. You're not wandering around aimlessly. And he's going to actually help you get it done. These are ways that he demonstrates his great love for us. And so there's three main ways that he demonstrates his love in equipping us to carry out the commands that are for our good. And the first of which, again, this is a review for a lot of you, is the Spirit of God. He gives to you the very Holy Spirit of God. Romans 5 and verse 5, Hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. The Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, as it comes to indwell our bodies, is referred to as ghost, and it is referred to as the the the, the person of the Godhead that takes up residence in your physical bodies from the very moment of salvation. And it's a gift that is given to you. He, he lives inside of you. He's the author of all truth. He guides you into all truth. And that's what we see in John chapter 16 and verse 13. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. We shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. So God has blessed all of you and given all of you not just eternal life if you've received him. He's given you his Holy Spirit to continue to dwell inside your body forever. Until the rapture of the church, he's with you through all the trials of this life. And so you say, okay, that's great. I mean, but how exactly does he do that? Well, it should make sense that the next thing that he gives us is the Word of God, of course. He gives us the Spirit of God, and He gives us the Word of God. So He guides us into all truth, as we saw in John 16, and John 17 tells us that Thy Word is truth, so it shouldn't surprise us when we read verses that are familiar to us, like 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God has given to us the Holy Writ, the Holy Scripture, the written script the scripture has been written and given to us by inspiration because the Spirit of God is the one that gave it to us, the very author of all truth that now lives within us as the guide of all these things. Why did he give us all? Why did he give us the Word of God? Well, it says it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, equipped. Unto all good works. You see, he's given us a job to do. He expects us to do it. 
He gave us the job because he loves us. Our love response is to do it. He didn't leave us alone. He's given us the tools so that we can do it. Listen, if you have the Spirit of God and you have the Word of God, really, what else do you need? I mean, seriously, people constantly will argue and complain about how I didn't have this resource and I didn't have that resource. Well, I mean, come on. He gave you the very Spirit of God. He gave you the very Word of God and, and a whole slew of promises in it. And there's really no reason why we can't get her done. If we love Him, if we're motivated. I mean, all we have to do after having received these amazing gifts... All we have to do then is what it says in 2 Timothy 2.15 and study it. We have to study to show ourselves approved unto God. A workman, yes, it takes work, but we can do that. Rightly dividing the word of truth. We have classes available for you to learn how to do that. We have a whole course that begins in September at 9 a.m. that will help you to do that. We have no excuse here. He's given you his spirit. He's given you his word. But that's not all. He, it could be all, but it's not all. Because he's given you, let her see, the gifts of God. We refer to those as gifts of the Spirit or spiritual gifts. Now, today's not the day that we're digging into that. We did that a few months ago when we studied 1 Corinthians. But just notice, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Then verses 9 and 10 in your Bible, if you'll notice, are in a parenthesis, and then it picks back up at the end of the parenthesis in verse number 11. So verse 8 rolls right into verse 11. It says, He gave gifts, Jesus Christ gave gifts unto men, and He gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Here we go. For the edifying of the body of Christ. God has not only given us His Spirit, He's not only given us His Word, He's, gave, he's given us unique spiritual gifts so that we could carry out the very work that He's asked us to do. The theme continues, Romans 12, 6-8, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, and it goes on, or teaching, or exhorting, or giving, or ruling, or mercy. And all these different various spiritual gifts that are not the theme of today's study, yet are given to each and every one of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior as a supernatural means through which you can serve. God has gifted each and every one of you uniquely that in combination with your experiences, in combination with your personality traits, in combination with all of the resources and opportunities that are in front of you, God has given you supernatural spiritual gifting. That the power of the Spirit that lives in you through the truth of the Word that is in front of you, you can carry out the one command. Go and make disciples of all nations. And if you will do it, you will find yourself so fulfilled, so full, so joyful, that, as it says in Romans chapter 8, that the sufferings of this present world aren't even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in you. What other life really matters? God loves you so much. He gave you a mission. He gave you purpose. And for you to avoid the mission and cast it aside because you'd rather just spend time on your boat or whatever it might be. Sorry. <laughs> Listen. You're not as happy as you could be. You're not as joyful as you could be. You're not as fulfilled as you could be. You're not living your best life now. He gave you gifts. That's awesome. What a loving God. Supernatural help so that you can carry it out. But you know what? Even all those gifts need the right balance. They got to have the right balance. That's why the very last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that long chapter that we studied previously on the subject of spiritual gifts, ends with this statement. 
verse 31, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way. Because gifts of the Spirit are excellent. But what's coming in chapter 13, it's more excellent. It's more excellent. And you know chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians is the greatest chapter in the Bible on the issue of love or charity as it's translated in that case. And the first three verses as that chapter kicks off really connects our service to the Lord with our love. And it shows the superiority of love over everything else that we might do without love, right? So he starts off by saying, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, well, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, oh my goodness, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. You see, what he's talking about here is your motivation. Why do you do what you do? How do you carry out the things that you carry them out? Begrudgingly? Out of obligation? Listen, I'm the pastor of a church. Churches operate on volunteer labor. God bless all of you that volunteer and serve. And let me just say, to serve is better than not to. <laughs> but the Lord really is drilling down on why you do it. Because as we're going to see, if you don't have the why worked out just right, you know what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to quit. You're going to do it for a while, and we'll be thankful for whatever contribution anybody makes. But my goodness, you're not going to stick it out. And people who quit and drop out frequently get bitter. They get bitter. You've got to get this one down. You've got to get this one right. God clearly commands us to serve. Why? Because he loves us. And he clearly gives us the tools necessary. Why? Because he loves us. And so there's really only one question remaining, and that is, number three, are we motivated to serve? Are we motivated to serve? Why do it? Is love the motivation for the mission to reach the lost? Well, it was for Jesus, right? Matthew chapter 9, 36. But when he saw the multitudes, what happened? He was moved with compassion. I want you to notice that it doesn't say that he felt compassion. He probably felt compassion. It doesn't say he felt compassion. It says he was moved with compassion. He was moved to actually do something about it, see? Because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. So what did he begin to do? Well, he said unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. What a great admonition. Christ was so moved with compassion for these sheep having no shepherd that he goes to the disciples and he says, Man, would you guys pray with me that God would send forth laborers? This is the end of of Matthew chapter 9. Go look up what happens in Matthew chapter 10. Those guys began praying for laborers, and oh, in chapter 10, they became the laborers. You know, some of you maybe who haven't really been engaged in the labor of the work of the Lord, you probably ought to just start praying that God would send some people to be laborers, and you might just find he answers that prayer with you. That's what we see here. Jesus was moved with compassion. We know John 3.16. Why did God send His only begotten Son? Because He loved the world, right? That's why. So I want you to see this. All throughout the Scripture, we see three levels of Christian commitment. As though God is observing that the motivation and response of His children is not all the same. All through the Scripture, we see this over and over and over that God is observing groups of people and he's breaking them down into groups of three. It's very interesting. 
Let me give you some of them. Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 8. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some in hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. In other words, there are some believers that when they get out and work the soil and when they're out doing the work of the Lord, they're going to bring forth fruit. And they're going to bring forth thirtyfold fruit. Now, you say, well, that's pretty good. Yes, it is pretty good. It really is. But there are some who will bring forth sixty. And there are others who will bring forth a hundred. Why do you suppose he differentiated between those? Well, I don't know. He's just observing. He points out that there are different levels of fruit bearing, different levels of dedication, different levels of consecration, maybe different levels of love motivation. I don't know. Speaking of fruit, he refers to it again in John 15. This is the vine and the branches, right? I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. I want you to notice the wording. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. More is better than just fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And you've probably read through that thing scores of times and maybe never even noticed that there's a progression. There are some that bring forth fruit. There are others that bring forth more fruit, and yet there are others that bring forth much fruit. You see, it's not all the same. Revelation chapter 12, notice this one, verse number 11. Context is the tribulation, but it's still interesting how it's all divided out. And it says, and they overcame him three different ways, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Do you know that there are some people who overcome the wicked one in their life simply by the blood of the Lamb? And praise the Lord, if you have done, man, if you have not done that, I pray that you'll do that today. Jesus Christ shed his blood so that you can have an eternal home with him forever in heaven and not fall prey to that place that was not made for you. It was made for the devil and his angels. You can overcome simply by surrendering your will to Jesus Christ and asking him to forgive you and become the Lord of your life. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. But there's another level. Because some people are overcome by the blood of the Lamb, but they take it another step. They actually have a word of testimony. They actually got a story to tell. They're actually out talking to people about what happened when the blood of the Lamb cleansed them from their sin. You see, this is another entire category. We're talking about an increased motivation of love. They not only overcame by the blood of the Lamb, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They weren't ashamed to go out and to speak for the Lord. See? But there's another level. There's another level. Because in this tribulation period, there's going to be a resurgence of, well, it happens all around the world even today, as it did in the early church years. But there's going to be a lot of martyrs. There's going to be a lot of people losing their life for the cause of Christ. They're going to stand fast. They love not their life unto the death. When people are threatening to take their lives if they don't renounce their faith in Jesus Christ and turn their back on sound doctrine and truth and people are going to stand and they're going to say, go ahead, you can take this body, but you can't take my life. It's already been bought with a price. And they love not their lives unto the very death. That's the highest level right there. That's the highest level. And the Lord is paying attention. It's interesting, as though he's observing that the motivation and response of all his children, well, it's just not the same. Another tribulation context, another good breakdown in threes, Revelation 17, 14. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Those that come with the Lord are all called to come with the Lord. But not everybody that's called answers the call. Do you hear the Lord calling? Sometimes the Lord is calling you. And you know what you could possibly do? It's an option for you. I hope you don't do it. An option for you is just to sit there on your blessed assurance and not answer the call. But if you'll stand up and say, here am I, send me, you know what he's going to do? He's going to choose you to use you. So some are called, but some are chosen. 
A lot of people that are chosen and sign up to do stuff, well, they're not all faithful. Because you have the called and the chosen, well, you have the faithful. <laughs> you have the faithful. You can look at the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles of the Lord, and they break into three categories. So you have the apostles, and, and listen, in each of these situations, being at the very lowest level, I mean, that's still good, right? The second level is better, right? The third one is best. That's what you want. And we'll see before we're done is what the Lord wants, by the way. But even the apostles, there was a subgroup of three that got to do things with the Lord that the other nine weren't always invited in to do. They got to go into certain places and times of prayer. Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord, and they'd go in when Jesus healed certain people. And so those three guys, Peter, James, and John, I mean, they, they, they had access that the other nine didn't have. But of those three, there was one, and it was John. John is the one who's referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Do you think Jesus loved them all? Of course he loved them all. But John had a special love for Jesus. So Jesus had a special love for John. And John is the only disciple of all the disciples that went all the way to the cross with Jesus Christ. All the rest of them, the Bible says, forsook him and fled. But John went all the way. John was special. And so it's interesting, we have this story in John chapter 13 where the disciples are gathered for the Last Supper, this Passover supper, right before the crucifixion. And in verse 21 it says, When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom he loved. John always refers to himself in the third person. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him, to John, that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is, to whom I shall give a sop, and when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So this interaction has taken place in the upper room, and Jesus says that this is going to happen and one of you is going to betray me and all the guys, except Judas, who probably knew, right? But all the guys are like, wow, really? Man, this is crazy. Who's it going to be? And if you would compare Scripture with Scripture and if you would look at Matthew's version in Matthew 26 and verse 22, it's referred to a little bit differently because in Matthew's version, the guys were asking the question and they were saying all to the Lord, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? But not John. John knew there was one guy in the room who it wasn't going to be. It wasn't going to be me. Peter and James and all the rest can ask, Lord, is it I? Doubting. John didn't doubt. John said, who is it? Who is it? See, it's different. It's different. John never doubted his loyalty. Only John went all the way to the cross with Jesus. He had a special love for Jesus. A personal, intimate, consecrated love relationship. You know what you do when you have that kind of relationship? You tell each other secrets. The people you love the most know more stuff about you. Right? And you do about them. And so what happens with Jesus Christ and his beloved disciple John in Revelation chapter 10 and verse number 4? Well, he tells them some secrets. He showed John some things that none of us ever got to see. John was going to write them down. He said, don't even write them down. That was just for you, John. That was just for you. I love you, bro. So in the Bible, there are three things that motivate us to serve the Lord. Three things that motivate us to serve the Lord. These th it goes along with these three levels. The first one is fear. This is the lowest level of motivation you could possibly have in, in service. Servants serve from fear if he doesn't serve well well he's afraid that he's going to be punished you know there's a lot of believers that are in this category they think god's out to get them he's going to whip them if they don't perform well this is the relationship of a master and a servant it's a relationship of a master and a servant it's not too personal not much of a relationship there it's just the interaction of people who have to work together they do what they have to do it's not necessarily what they want to do 
But this is the way some people interact with God. They just realize, well, you know, I, I'm supposed to do stuff, so I guess I better do it. I don't really like it, but I'm going to put my time in, you know, and maybe it'll, maybe it'll do something for me. I don't know. At least I won't get whipped. Listen, it's true. The Lord understands and may occasionally even use this motivation for us if that's the level that we're at. It's not necessarily bad. It's just the most base elementary level. What it helps you deal with in your life, actually, is the lust of the flesh. Because if you love your flesh so much that you don't want to get whipped and punished, well, maybe that'll motivate you to do something. Okay, uh, that's the most base way, right? God does refer to fearing the Lord as a positive thing. For example, in Hebrews 12, 28, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. There are times when the Lord will remind us of such motivation. And fear may not necessarily just be that we would be beaten if we don't do something right, but maybe that we just miss out on privilege, right? Losing rewards, for example. So in 1 Corinthians 3, speaking of that day of judgment of the Christian's works, in verse 13, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And it goes on in verse 15 to say, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So there's a loss of privilege. What do you teach young children in your homes? Well, if they don't do certain things, there's going to be some level of punishment. And that punishment doesn't necessarily have to be corporal punishment, right? It may just simply be the removal of privilege the removal of advantage, right? And that's what the Lord has. So that's the most basic level of motivation for service could be fear. The next level up from that would be reward. It would be reward. A lot of Christians are in this category. I would say we're all in this category at some level, for sure. Uh, the Bible calls such people a hireling. And hireling. Uh, a hireling is somebody who serves for reward. If he doesn't get paid... Well, he's not going to do it. Um, you know, there's a lot of great leadership books that are out there in the bookstores, and a lot of people like to refer to these great leadership principles and leadership books, and that's all fine. But a vast majority of them that are written are written from people in the corporate world, where all the people that they're leading are also being paid <laughs> to do what they're doing. And so let's just take all those great leadership principles in your job and business and quit paying all your employees and see how great a leader you are. I mean, sometimes you just got to take things with a grain of sand. Okay, so in this situation, we've got a situation where people certainly are motivated to get something for what we do. This is the relationship of a boss and employee. That's what this is. It's the relationship of a boss and an employee. And so a boss and an employee may very well be friends, but truly, the only reason that they're showing up and working together is because each of them are going to get their portion of reward, right? And there are some people who do it just for an earthly reward here and now. We saw that problem in Malachi chapter 3, for example, where it says, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, What have we spoken so much against thee? And God says, Ye have said, It's vain to serve God, and what profit is it? that we've kept this ordinance, that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. Last week we saw Psalm 73. It's the same thing. The idea is if I don't see immediate, visible, tangible benefit to my life today, why waste my time serving the Lord? Why am I suffering through all of this to do without? I could do without and without the serving part too and have more time, right? That's a very carnal way to serve if that's your motivation. People who do that are the people who generally quit after a while because eventually life turns and it's not always working out great for you. But most of us probably don't necessarily fall into that base level. Probably more of us that serve for reward are serving understanding that our reward is coming in as heavenly. Right? Most of us understand that while we may not get it yet, well, one day it's coming and the Lord will make it all clear, right? I mean, we understand that we may not always enjoy the nicest and easiest life today, that, but God's got a reward system. 
And, and you know, that is a motivation. We can see far enough off, we understand what His Word says, that we're willing to get in line and, well, I mean, I don't always love all the things that I do, but if I do it faithfully, well, you know, millennium will be a whole lot more fun. I mean, I'll get mine then, right? And by the way, that is a legitimate motivation. It is a legitimate motivation. Um, And this is something that the Lord knows, and so He uses it to motivate us to do things. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this time in verse 12, speaking of the kinds of rewards, Included in them are gold, silver, and precious stones. Things that won't burn up. Things that will last forever, right? The judgment seat of Christ will judge all of our works of what sort they are. And as a result, the Bible says that we will receive crowns. And the Bible says when we get to be in the very presence of the Lord, we can then take those crowns and cast them at the Lord's feet as a gift of love to show Him that we did that for Him. Okay, he motivates us with this idea. Even Peter. Peter was one of the three. He wasn't John, but he was one of the three. So Peter was of that second tier, right? That second level. Who's motivated by the thing that motivates people of the second level, rewards. When he said in Matthew 19, 27, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we've forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have? Therefore, see, Peter's looking out for the rewards. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, ye which have followed me in the regeneration, we're talking about later, not now, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sister, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. So he's like, oh, oh, you're worried about what you get out of this deal. Oh, well, let me put your mind at ease. There's stuff for you. There's stuff for you, Peter. Don't worry about it. It's okay. And so Peter's like, got it. Right on. All right. Listen, this is a legitimate motivation. It is. Uh, I'm motivated time. I'm motivated by this from time to time. But can I just remind us all, there is a higher level. There is a higher level. And you know what that's going to be, right? It's love. Being motivated by love. This is represented by John. John is the beloved disciple. At this level, there's no need for supervision for this person. There's no fear of punishment or loss. They have no need for monetary reward. They just want to serve. They just want to. It's the relationship of a father and a son. That's the relationship. It's the relationship of a father and a son. They feel obligated to participate as a member of the family. Our family is doing something. I'm in the family. Therefore, I'm doing something. That's how it works. Solomon, the son of David, who wrote the Proverbs, which are fatherly advice to his son, and the advice, as we have a long list of Proverbs, we can go through real quickly, are basically advice on how to behave properly. And this fatherly advice over and over and over again in the Proverbs, Proverbs 1.8, My son, hear the instruction of thy father, forsake not the law of thy mother. 2.1, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee. Each of those verses go on to explain good things that will happen. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. 4, hear ye children the instruction of a father and intend to know understanding for i give you good doctrine forsake ye not my law for i was my father's son tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother he taught me also and said unto me let thine heart retain my words keep my commandments and live chapter 5 my son chapter 6 my son chapter 7 my son and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on a good son will listen a good son will participate Because he loves his dad. He loves his dad. And he's willing to do it. That's the kind of relationship the Lord wants to have with you. That's what he wants to have with us on a daily basis. You see, Solomon is the son of David. And Solomon is writing advice to his son. 
And Jesus Christ in the New Testament is referred to as the son of David. And Jesus Christ is writing advice to us. And he wants us to love him with that family kind of a love that will motivate us to behave properly. But not everybody's always willing to do that. There's, there's still plenty of prodigals running around in our families. The Luke 15 prodigal son that says, I want what I want and I want it now. And until he realized that that was foolishness and he humbled himself and he came back willing to be a servant, but yet his father loved him and threw a party for him because that's how he loves us. When you have this kind of a motivation in your life, you live for something bigger than yourself. When you live a life like this, you know what your life demonstrates? Worship. Consecration. Being set apart for a sacred use. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're holy without sin. It just means that your life has been set apart and is focused on the only relationship that matters above every other relationship there is, your love relationship with your Heavenly Father. You see, God is not simply interested in what you do, but why you do it. There's a lot of people who have the what without the why. And that just will only last for a little while. You get weary doing it that way. But if you have the why, you're going to have the what. Because if you have the right motivation in your heart and in your soul, there's no way that you can just sit idly by and not be involved. It's impossible. In fact, so much so that Jesus Christ throughout uses this ultimate level of relationship, this motivation of love, as the true test of whether or not you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Certainly Jesus not advocating you hate your family. He's saying your love for me should so outstretch that that in comparison, your love for your family will appear as hate. You say, how do you know that? It's because I read Matthew chapter 10. You can go do that too. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What he's talking about is you love not your own life. You love not yourself. Your relationship is greater than that of just simply a servant or a slave. Luke 14, 33, So likewise, whosoever be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. You have to go beyond the level of an hireling. You have to go beyond the level of that monetary reward. And you go to John 15, 8. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. That's that third level. So shall ye be my disciples. John 8, 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue... In my word, then are you my disciples indeed. You continue all the way to the end, just like John, the third level, all the way to the cross. No quitting. You see, love is always the motivation for our consecration. And that's what we see in 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ constraineth us. You know, that's a word we don't often use, constrain. We think of constraints like something that ties you up so you can't move. That's really not the idea. To, con to be constrained, consider it this way. For the love of Christ grips me. It grips me. Such that, as it goes on to say, if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all that they which live. Do you live? you have eternal life in him should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto him which died for them and rose again the love of Christ grips me so that I don't even live for myself I don't even factor into the equation I don't even 
I'm not even a part of the conversation. All that matters is, and with all the Lord has done for me and all that he continues to do for me and all the promises that stand before me, all I care about is what he cares about. And what does he care about? Which political party is in office? Who's making fun of who on Facebook? Which team's going to the Super Bowl? Billions of people are on their way to hell. Billions. That's what he cares about. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. If you truly love him, you love what he loves, you have his heartbeat, just like John, whose head was rested on the chest of Jesus, could hear the very heartbeat of God and was motivated to go to the very end because love is the motivation that brings forth your consecration. That's what it is. What motivates you? Because if this morning, honestly before the Lord, it's not the love of God, I'm just going to ask you if you'd be willing to be honest enough to confess that to the Lord as we pray and let him begin to work on your heart. Let's pray together.